I'm Ryan Miller, Crops Extension Educator. Earlier this morning, we recorded an episode of the Strategic Farming Field Notes program. Strategic Farming Field Notes is a weekly program addressing current crop production topics. A live webinar is hosted at 8 a.m. on Wednesdays throughout the cropping season. During the live webinar, participants can join in the discussion and get questions answered. An audio recording of the live program is released following the webinar via podcast platforms. Thanks, and remember to tune in weekly for a discussion on current cropping and crop management topics. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to today's Strategic Farming Field Notes program, and we're glad you could join us for today's session. So today we'll be covering core nitrogen and nutrient status and spraying herbicides and hot temperatures for a bit of a split uh, episode session today. So these sessions are brought to you by University of Minnesota Extension, as well as very generous support from the Minnesota Soybean Research and Promotion Council, as well as the Minnesota Corn Growers and Research and Promotion Council. I'm Anthony Hansen, Regional Extension Educator and Integrated Pest Management for Field Crops. And we'll also have Dave Nikolai, Regional Extension Educator, uh, based at University of Minnesota Extension as well, hosting today's session. So today we're also welcoming quite a few different speakers today. First, we have Brad Carlson, as well as Dan Kaiser with the University of Minnesota, looking at water and nutrient specialties. And then we have Joe Eichley, Extension Weed Specialist from North Dakota State University. And with that, I think I'll turn it over to Dave and see what you wanna cover for the nutrient side of things today. All right, thank you very much, Anthony. Uh, <clears throat> we wanna to go to our, one of our first guests, uh, Brad Carlson, a coworker of ours that uh, works out of the Mankato uh, Regional Office, but uh, in a lot of water quality issues uh, in the past drainage, but uh, most recently uh, dealing with nitrogen uh, management and application uh, authors and promotes uh, the Nitrogen Smart program uh, across the state of Minnesota in conjunction with the Minnesota corn growers. So Brad, um, we've had an interesting spring here uh, coming up. Things were a little bit later than people anticipated. Um, how's our nitrogen status right now uh, going through uh, the spring and as far as Minnesota? And obviously there's differences from north to south, and maybe you can talk about those as well. In general, I think it looks pretty good. I'm really not seeing signs of a lot of deficiency. I, I think everybody's well aware of what happened with nitrogen price. Uh, that caused some changes in the application uh, patterns, I guess, if you will, as far as uh, I know some parts of the state put on a lot more fall and uh, than they maybe previously had from a proportion wise. Uh, uh, and then I think in addition to that, there was general concerns uh, from a lot of producers regarding uh, the potential for, for product availability later on. The trend over the last five, six plus years has been to see a lot more side dress, uh, you know, split applications, but it seems like this year there was a lot less of that. And I think a lot of that was just simply related to farmers having concerns that uh, when they get to that that uh, side dress time or right now uh, that potentially uh, the product wouldn't be available. And so I haven't seen nearly as many rigs out in the field uh, as I have over the last several years uh, doing top dress, side dress. 
you know, in, in general, there was a lot of questions on account of how wet it was uh, this spring. Of course, last year was a, a pretty dry year uh, with a lot of that end being put on in the fall. Uh, there were questions about did we lose a lot of nitrogen? We really didn't see uh, a lot of evidence that that was likely to have happened. Um, maybe in some cases uh, where there's some lighter soils, for sure, there was a chance that we might have leached some of that out. But it's uh, worth noting, and one of the, the things that we talk about a lot when we do our Nitrogen Smart program, that the denitrification, the loss of nitrogen to the atmosphere is one of the major loss pathways in our heavier textured soils uh, in south central Minnesota, southern Minnesota, really all the way across. Uh, and, and that process is biological, and therefore it's also temperature dependent. And so uh, even though it was wet early, uh, you know, pre-planting and we had delayed planting, planting, uh, the soils were quite cold still at that point in time. And so from that standpoint, it uh, didn't seem likely that we probably lost a lot of end to denitrification early. Uh, this is really right now the time of year where we would be at a lot more risk to that. And of course, uh, over the last couple of weeks, uh, we've, we've not had uh, quite so much precip. Uh, where I'm at in particular in South Central Minnesota, uh, Waseca, Mankato area, we're actually starting to see some leaf curling on the corn, uh, signs of a, of a tick of uh, water stress. Uh, I know that uh, Western Minnesota, Central Minnesota has had more adequate precipitation, uh, but probably not overly abundant. If you uh, are in a localized area that had some real downpours and you've got some ponding and flooding, uh, it is possible that you will see some significant denitrification uh, going forward, uh, as you know, we what we see is or the some of the the research on that shows that if the soil when the soil temperature is about eighty degrees, which it possibly is now that we've had a couple of days that have gone to hundred, um, that that uh, saturated soils will lose about half their nitrogen in about ten days. But staying saturated for ten days is also not a common occurrence. Uh, but that can happen in the low spots in the field. And so I guess from there, uh, you know, then farmers got to decide how big is that area? Is it worth going back into? Um, you know, as far as the guys who are planning to do, um, who are planning to do still some side dress or top dress, uh, uh, I think at this point it's getting late enough. Uh, uh, you, you should know uh, how you're going to put that on, whether you're going to have it commercially applied, uh, uh, for instance, with a, a spin spreader over the top, uh, or if uh, somebody's going to come in or you yourself are going to come in and dribble band it or use Y drops or something of that sort. Uh, so from that standpoint, I think those decisions probably are set. Um, similarly, the light textured soils, uh, the, the guys who irrigate, uh, you know, that's always been a recommendation to use multiple splits. And in those cases, I think most of those producers pretty well know what they're going to do. Uh, I guess just a couple of tips uh, to remember, everybody's been talking about how extraordinarily windy it's been the last year or so that if you're putting the uh, nitrogen on with a spin spreader and it's pretty windy, you can get some really strange application patterns that can cause problems in the field. Uh, so try and stay away from those days when we're getting 25, 30 mile an hour wind gusts um, that could cause a lot of issues. Um, the other thing is uh, there was some research done at Waseca, uh, Jeff Vetch did regarding um, just comparing a, a single band, dribble band to Y-drop nozzles 
And I think the key takeaway was that they had uh, a little bit of yield loss that they felt primarily was because the uh, the hoses that they were dragging were kind of wandering around the rows uh, and and causing inconsistent application. And so, uh, you know, that too, if if you're using a dribble band where you're dragging a hose, uh, and part particularly if you're maybe driving fast, uh, make sure that the hoses aren't going places where you don't want them to. Uh, I think the last thing uh, that I want to talk about uh, regarding some of this is using urease inhibitors. Um, we recommend that if you're putting on um, urea that that we would like to see at least about a quarter of an inch of rain within four days. And of course, lately, the last week or so, we haven't necessarily been able to count on that. In general, uh, the urease inhibitors, the patent's gone off those, the price has come down a lot, and that's become fairly standard practice anyway. Uh, but uh, I think it's probably a good investment given the, the weather patterns. And I see looking out here um, at the, the one week forecast, you know, we've got a couple of days with 50%, 60% chance. Um, does that mean that if you package them all together at some point, we're going to get rain? Well, I hope so, because we could use it, uh, but I don't think that's a guarantee. So I think uh, using a urease inhibitor, um, uh, particularly on urea, um, is really is a good investment. And then in addition, addition to that, uh, they, we have seen uh, instances where there's also been a small yield increase using a urease inhibitor with UAN, uh, because remember, half of that product is urea also. And uh, especially if it, uh, you know, in, in, if we're getting a case where um, it's getting hot and so forth, uh, you know, that, that uh, is going to um, react in the soil. It's not the urease part. Uh, the conversion to urea may not necessarily be temperature dependent, but then if we end up blowing it off uh, uh, into the atmosphere later as urea or as uh, uh, ammonia, that that can be a tick uh, temperature dependent. I think the key though with the UAN and why we say we get slight increases of yield is, I think it's more of a does it, doesn't it? And so it's really more of a case of is the situation right where you needed it versus you didn't need it at all. It's not like just some small percentage, it's either one or the other. Uh, and so that's also worth considering if you're able to get a urease inhibitor on your UAN. All right, well, thank you very much, Brad, for that, uh, for that update. Our other guest, uh, Dr. Dan Kaiser with the University of Minnesota Extension and, and Soils. Um, Dan, you wanna comment uh, and we can come back and circle back a little bit more about nitrogen. We have a question or two, but I wanna get in if there's any observations that you might have on other crop nutrients, things that people need to keep watching for. Uh, we have some concerns obviously about sulfur from time to time. Uh, uh, maybe you can mention a little bit about where we are on, on potassium, although it's more of a recommendation situation, but um, other things that uh, you would be scouting for or trying to get, get a handle on this uh, uh, this spring. Now we're moving into summer officially. Just looking at the plots we've had, I mean, the main thing I've seen widespread has been sulfur deficiency. Um, I was actually out looking at some of my sulfur and potassium trials. Um, you know, one of my corn trials on a little bit drier piece of ground pretty low soil test value. So obviously seeing some um, issues there, but uh, sulfur would be the one that I didn't expect to see as much of a problem this spring, but it's one of them that we've had to treat a little bit more. So that's just kind of brush up on the difference between sulfur deficiency and um, some of these other nutrients. Um, if we do get dry, I would suspect to see some marginal areas that are marginal in potassium, maybe start to show up. 
with some deficiencies. Um, just kind of keep an eye on that. So it seems like potassium is kind of one of the ones that um, the nutrients that gets forgotten about us slightly when we start getting these high fertilizer prices. It seems to be nitrogen that we know we get a high return on that um, is a primary focus and then always phosphorus, which phosphorus is probably the easier one to cut in some of the soils just because the soil test generally works pretty well for it. So that's just something I'd keep out an eye out for if you've got anything um, soil tests in that 150 to 200 range, um, south central, southwest, west central Minnesota, just keep an eye on it. We get dry, we might start seeing some potassium deficiency show up in some of the marginal areas. Well, one crop we don't often talk about is alfalfa. You know, we've spent a lot of time on corn and soybeans. Anything on a nutrient standpoint or uh, our applications that we should consider, whether this summer or this fall on alfalfa? It just depends on what the soil test value is. I mean, I can't speak. I mean, we've done enough work on potassium. I mean, we've had a few crop news articles on that. If you kind of want to dig back into that. I mean, I was seeing uh, we've got some sulfur trials out and um, some areas that we haven't had sulfur on for a few years have been showing pretty well. I mean, we just took our first cut off of that and it was probably close to about a half a ton difference between the with and without treatments on uh, some of the sulfur trials and we reapplied after first cut. So we'll kind of see moving forward, but I can still see the, the plots out there with and without. So it's one of the things that, um, you know, does show up in there. And it's one of the things, if you're looking at alfalfa, I mean, it's, it's, if you're starting to see some yellowing or the, the stand looks a little thin, it could be sulfur. I mean, sulfur and potassium kind of can uh, mimic each other a little bit, although, um, you know, striking differences, if you start getting real strong potassium deficiencies in your alfalfa, you should be able to, to tell that from sulfur if, if you've got a pretty severe deficiency. Well, with our, a couple of minutes we've got left in this segment, uh, maybe I'm just going to throw out questions to both Dan and, and Brad here that we've gotten from folks uh, this, this last week. Uh, one of them was in regards to the, uh, the pre-plant nitrogen tests. What did we see in terms of the the, the PPNT tests across the state, and did we really have that much carryover uh, nitrogen credits from uh, from last year? And then, and finally, real quickly, the denitrification, particularly in the flooded, you know, Red River Valley in the in the north, uh, in there. So, I kind of there's three questions I'm grouping together. But if you guys want to hit on those real quick, uh, that would be great. Well, I, uh, I, I kind of went through and summarized some of the uh, PPNT data. Some of the commercial labs provided us with some of their uh, test results, and we did see a fair amount of, of carryover nitrogen. Now, the thing that I think we have to remember, and, and I didn't get results from spring tests that were taken, I guess from a timely standpoint, it was by the time we got those, it would be a little late to do much with them. But from the fall ones, uh, there was a fair amount. The thing you have to keep in mind is, is most of those samples were taken in circumstances where we expected there to be, otherwise you wouldn't have taken a test there. Uh, but in cases where we thought there could be a, a, a nitrogen carryover, there was. Um, there certainly are a lot of other places where there could be. Um, you know, remember that that uh, particularly where we had have uh, um, uh, fo corn following corn, where there could have been unused nitrogen from the previous year, as well as fields that have a long long-term manure history, those are the places we might have expected that. Um, also, it's been a little bit more of a trend lately to get into the pre-side dress nitrate test, the in-season one. I guess the reminder, if you're using that, uh, we're not necessarily saying it doesn't work, uh, but it's been difficult to calibrate the test because uh, particularly, um, depending on how you already, if you already applied, say, half of your nitrogen and you're wondering how much more to put on, um, did you get a consistent application? 
uh, is that nitrogen all converted to nitrate? Because remember the test only tests for nitrate. If you applied anhydrous and you knifed it in, did you take a sample in between where the knives went and is it all nitrate at the time you took the, the test and so forth? Um, as well as in corn on corn situations, particularly there can be issues with immobilizing nitrogen from the residue, meaning it's there, but you didn't pick it up in the test. You know, so from that standpoint, uh, we've, we've kind of backed off on making any kind of test recommendations um, with the uh, PSNT, uh, but uh, uh, Iowa State does have some of that. And, and I know we've been kind of, Fabian particularly has been looking uh, more specifically lately at, at uh, trying to, to get some calibration uh, and recommendations for that in Minnesota. But at this point, we still just don't have good data that we can hang our hats on. Dan, any last uh, thing comments you would have either on nitrogen or something else here as we come well, as Brad here. was talking earlier, just remember with denitrification that it's it's temperature dependent. So you know that question about the Red River Valley being flooded, if it was cold enough, it's it's not likely that we denitrified everything. I mean, you may have lost up to you know five, ten percent, Brad, probably net, maybe even less than that. Um, I mean, really right this time of year is when the the risk is a lot higher. So that's one of the things looking at that, um, just with that um, primary question I've been getting this spring um, has been switching to urea spun on instead of some of the other sources. Big worry from some of the growers has been damage um, and how much to put on. Um, we've put on up to about 180 pounds of N as urea and they start seeing some damage, although it depends on the situation. I mean, if you're looking at 100, 100 to 120 units N, probably not more cosmetic issues but I haven't seen anything that's going to be really too much of an issue um, with that. But as Brad said, um, really right now, if you can't count on rain, we need rain within about four days, about a quarter inch um, to effectively incorporate the urea in one shot. So um, that's where you want to start looking at some of the generic um, agritain type products with that, just to, to make sure that um, you're not gassing off some of that because we're in a hot stage right now if there's moisture on the surface that urea starts to dissolve you're going to see some or some volatilization loss of that product well, and there you. are there are some uh, people that uh, have been interested in cultivating it in yes that works if you have a cultivator and you want to do that um, and that could be a segue into your next guest too all right well thank you very much uh, uh, Dan and Brad if folks have questions they can email you uh uh, directly and we are recording this we appreciate that i know you guys have other things you've got to run to this morning uh, i want to bring in um i guess uh anthony our next guest uh, uh dr joe eichley and if we can uh um see if we can uh, hook in with uh with with joe okay at this point in time um and joe can you hear me yes can you hear me i can hear you um i guess you are mobile today uh, uh probably in the highest point in the red river valley uh, uh, which is, uh, I don't know, is, is that 10 feet or 20 feet? But anyhow, uh, you're up on a, up on a rise. But uh, uh, Joe, uh, I've known for uh, many years, he is uh, across the river and is our extension weed specialist for the state of North Dakota. And so we do a lot of things uh, back and forth, including, including uh, we just wrote a crop news together here that was published in Minnesota yesterday. I understand it's going to be a version in North Dakota published, but talking about temperatures and making our herbicide applications, particularly under above average temperatures and hot weather as things are moving along. So I, I, I guess, Joe, um, um, why would we even want to talk about this <laughs> in, in terms of that? What are some of the concerns and things that, 
that you see that uh, cooperators need to uh, uh, be on the watch for and think about here in sometimes these hot, windy conditions? Well, so I think one of the reasons we want to talk about it, uh, so just interesting, I saw a map of the U.S. the other day, and I believe down by you guys, Minnesota was uh, down by the Twin Cities was the hottest area in the Great Plains a couple of days ago. So that's maybe the why, of course, because we've been very hot. Uh, the other reason is a lot of folks remember last year when we had these hot conditions. Of course, we were in a severe drought. Most of the complaints we had last year were due to uh, product performance issues and lack of weed control. So we hit a, a hot stretch of weather and then folks will start thinking about that again. Uh, but I do want to contrast that for this year, at least most of us, at least in, in my state, we have plenty of, of moisture this year. And so that's one difference. And the other one is our winds this year tend to be more of a southeast wind versus a southwest wind. And so what that typically means is the air masses we are dealing with are more humid as well. So very hot. Yes. The same as last year. Absolutely not. And then that's kind of what, what some of the things we talked about in that article that we wrote. And we really didn't have uh, uh, the drought per se that we had a combination last year and in earlier June, if folks remember, but certainly these really um, uh, hot temperatures, anything that we should talk about in terms of herbicide uptake from a weed standpoint, in terms of, uh, of a cuticle buildup, and maybe we can explain that a little bit more, but in terms of, of uh, uh, shutting down, are we still going to be there or some, some things that we have to keep in mind on, on weed control? Yep. So, so again, comparing weeds uh, last year to this year. And so if you have weeds that have been through some drought stress and, and we do have some weeds, if we have uh, some short-term drought and those roots aren't developed, they may have some drought stress built into them a little bit, but when they're, when they're going through dry weather and also hot weather, they tend to build a thicker cuticle and that's what makes it more difficult to control weeds in a drought and especially in hot conditions. Uh, so we need something to get through that cuticle uh, whether that's more oil, uh, more carrier volume. Uh, usually oil is the easiest thing we can add to a tank to help dissolve that cuticle. If you're in areas with adequate moisture and then also with relative or high relative humidities, the, cu uh, the cuticles are going to be a little bit thinner because the plants just don't need to develop a thick cuticle to conserve moisture. So that's the, the difference in dry versus wet. Now, when we get in these hot conditions, whether we have moisture, whether we don't have moisture, the weeds will shut down during the heat of the day. And, and so you can see that we probably all saw it the last couple of days when we we're up, uh, upper 90s and 100s. Uh, grasses, they'll roll just like corn. I heard some mentions of, of corn leaves rolling in the last segment. Weed, grass weeds will do the same thing. Grass broadleaf weeds will tend to droop uh, their leaves a little bit uh, just to kind of survive the heat of the day. And so... That means, A, they're shutting down, not actually growing during that heat of the day. Uh, but then, B, that also means we can have some issues with uh, proper coverage and deposition uh, just due to that leaf architecture. So, really, you have to look at that weather forecast because there's always some sometimes danger uh, spraying at night or that type of thing, temperature inversions and other things off target movement. But uh, what's your uh, what's your feeling in terms of timing here? If, if you can afford a day, would you... Would you wait? Would you go out at night? Uh, or it depends upon the mode of action here. Yeah, and so maybe a field-by-field field decision, again, based on your mode of action, based on your weed stage, a uh, number of things to consider there. But 
if I were to just kind of general generalize here, I'd say if you can or you have to spray during a hot day, try to spray during the morning uh, because the the plants had all night to kind of cool off, uh, re reset their canopy architecture, and you have a window there in the morning where the, they will be actively growing and, and will be more susceptible compared to later in the day. We'll have a window in the evening as well, but again, you mentioned uh, temperature inversions, and they tend to set in two to three hours before sunset, and that's really about when the weeds are starting to cool off and come down and become more susceptible. So there is a window in the evening, but it is a little bit tighter. Yeah, um, I I, I agree. I, I was talking to a grower yesterday and he was going to go out, you know, very early this morning on soybeans, just specifically for that reason. He had that window and he felt he had a better opportunity and control in the morning hours. Yeah. And, and then the other thing I was going to mention, and maybe it's not as extreme uh, further south of Minnesota, but, you know, we've, we've had a couple hot days and the cool off and the next couple of days for us will be in the mid 90s and then we'll be in the mid 70s this weekend. And so if you are in a position where you can wait a couple of days, wait it out, let the heat wave pass, then that would probably be my recommendation uh, just to, to make sure that we, you know, we're not exposing ourselves to potentially too much crop injury in these conditions where we also have some very uh, wet soils and in the hot conditions. We, as I said, weed control is better, but for those of, with concerns to crop injury, crop injury will be higher in the, in the hot conditions as well. Little, uh, just talk a little bit about that from a herbicide. I think about glufosinate or, or Liberty here. We're getting, you know, some of our weeds that are well beyond four inches. And certainly we won't be too long here in places in Minnesota. And we're going to be R one and soybeans. But uh, there's, a, there's a finite limit here, isn't there, on some of these products. Uh, you can maybe go with some of the other uh, uh, group 15 or group uh, 14s a little bit later on. But uh, I, I think those are things that we should... Uh, uh, be aware of. And obviously dicamba, we have that cutoff already on southern Minnesota that we mentioned in the article. You can still do it in northern Minnesota, north of I-94 I and in North Dakota. But in Minnesota, we, we're, we're concerned about that 85 degree temperature forecast is shutting down as well. But I think North Dakota is still a, like a best management practices, right, Joe? Yeah, that's correct. So it's kind of you know, recommended if, if you can avoid spraying above 85, please do so. But there, there's nothing prohibiting that. Right, right, on North Dakota. But in northern Minnesota, north of I-94, we do have that um, a proviso here from the Minnesota Department of Ag, so that the, that's hard and fast uh, with uh, with 85. We had another question that came in, and I don't know, I mean, maybe this is back a, a, a while ago, but one from the grower said, you know, was is there a pros and cons about dual versus zidua in soybean production? Uh, you've had some experience with, with both. Uh, uh, dual being a much older product, Zidua being obviously a newer product on the market, maybe more efficacious on, on certain types of broadleaves. Any, any feeling there one way or the other, Joe? Yeah, so the two weeds that I tend to think of when comparing those products, uh, Zidua is going to perform better on pigweeds than Dual will. Uh, so that, that's pretty consistent. Uh, that is assuming, of course, adequate moisture for activation. Zidual does require at least a half an inch for, for best activation. So it's the, the least water soluble of those group 15 herbicides. But if you get good activation, it's, it really does shine on the pigweeds. Uh, where dual, I do uh, think, will outperform Zidua is for those of us that deal with panicum species of grasses. So they're, they're both pretty equivalent on the foxtails and some other grasses. But for panicum species, and up here, we're, 
really more wild pros and millet, but I think down your geography, Dave, you probably deal with fall panicum a lot more. And dual does tend to be a better bit, uh, better product than Zidua on fall panicum and other panicum species. Yeah, we're not, as far as in, in Iowa, we get the wild proso millet, uh, the woolly cup grass, and, it's, and of course the foxtails, um, you know, the s- situation with that and emergence. Any last words about um, cutoff dates for crops, um, weed size, or anything else that, that we should be paying attention to? I mean, there's, there's a limit uh, with that. We've got concern about products like Flexstar applied too late and carrying over into next year. Uh, but that's a residual situation. But anything else about crop safety here and variability in weed height out there? Yeah, so I think just focusing on crops, you know, I'm, I'm here in the field staring at corn that is 12 to 16 inches. And so, of course, at 12 inches, that's our cutoff for atrazine. Uh, 11 inches is, is our cutoff for acetochlor containing products. And so we are starting to lose some, some available options just based on corn height and growth stage and corn. And then soybeans, as you mentioned, since yesterday was a solstice, we're going to start thinking about flowering. Uh, the first kind of popular product that we that we lose i think we mentioned joe your your signal's changing a little bit there but i think we're going to go to glufosinate yeah there in, in terms of that i don't know joe can you hear me you may have uh made it off there in a different spot well, yeah, we may uh, have lost them, Dave. Yeah, you might come back. But Anthony, I think those are the main things that we wanted to cover from a weed science standpoint. Do you want to talk briefly about uh, some of the other aspects? Um, and I know there's comments that Bruce Potter, your coworker, made here recently, uh, recently about armyworm, etc. But do you want to give some highlights uh, about that since we are in a field notes program, something else that we should be watching for this week? And grasshoppers, yeah. that was the other thing. That came yeah, from. we do have a few insect updates coming in. Uh, like you mentioned, Bruce Potter, he's been putting the word out on true armyworm. Now, especially if you had a rye cover crop or any grasses nearby your fields that have been terminated or mowed, that's a high risk for true armyworm larvae to be moving into your field and your crops anyways. So keep an eye out for those. There have been some fields, uh, anecdotal reports, but I think we had one report from a guy who had about 125 acres and he said the whole field was pretty much cleared off. So that uh, is a concern. They came in about maybe three weeks ago, the moths, they'd laid their eggs and larvae have been developing. So that's one thing to keep an eye out for. Um, we also have alfalfa weevil. The season's wrapping up for that or should be. Now remember that they have a single generation per year. And once the larvae are done developing, they're not causing any more damage. So there are a lot of folks out there that are getting you know, maybe jump the gun a little bit on the insecticide use right now, but be sure to check the thresholds, be out there and scout. Just having um, larvae out there does not mean you need to spray, especially if you're going to be mowing soon. And remember your pre-harvest intervals for those ones too, because a lot of times they're around, you know, seven days or so. And if you're going to be mowing within a week anyways, a lot of times it's better just to mow a little bit earlier. So that's one where we have some fields where I am and uh, we were at threshold right right before mowing, but just stuck with mowing and haven't had issues since. So uh, keep that in mind because we may be worried about pyrethroid resistance. Do you want to uh, mention the last word about grasshoppers? Yep, grasshoppers is the last one. In that case, um, you know, they like the drier weather. I've been seeing some earlier season grasshoppers show some fields. 
There have been some reports of people spraying form even, but uh, do be sure to check the threshold information on the University of Minnesota website for those too, because there is a process you can go through for scouting for those, whether by sweet net or trying to gauge how many grasshopper seeds per square foot walking around too. But it should be pretty early for soybeans, um, but they can tolerate some damage just from chewing damage on there too from grasshoppers. Dave, I think there's some questions coming in. Oh, Joe was. Joe had one quick too. comment. His yeah. mic dropped off because he was, this is real time uh, uh, webinar. He was out in the field and probably uh, got a little bit farther from the, one of the local towers. But anyhow, uh, he just wanted to mention again, the glufosinate and the Liberty, the cutoff is the R1, but in list products, you are allowed through R1. Okay, so keep that in mind. You still have an opportunity. And I know a lot of people are, are still able to uh, do that. But keep in mind the wind, uh, drift, and, and concerns off target well, with all of these products, particularly horticulture products, grapes, and other things in the, in, in the area, uh, whatever we can do to mitigate that and to eliminate that. And you might have to choose the right uh, the nozzles, uh, droplet size, et cetera, uh, drift control products, et cetera. So with those. Um, you're going to mention anything else. Uh, we want to thank Joe for coming in and, and hanging in there and, and doing it on a cell phone uh, in that high spot in the Red River Valley. So uh, appreciate that. Anything else, Anthony, at this point? I think that'll mostly cover it. Uh, it's a little early for soybean aphid. It might, you might be seeing it on some plants, but hot, dry weather might be a little tough on it too. So we'll just keep an eye on that one for now, but nothing much to report there. Otherwise, Dave, thanks again. I think we will call it a morning here. So again, thank you for everyone for attending Strategic Farming Field Notes. Just a reminder, when you do exit the session, there is that very short four-question survey, and that helps us out a lot if you can give us feedback on today's session. And we also we'll, want to thank... Oh, we'll, go ahead, Dave. I was going to say, we'll be back again on the 29th next week. Yep, exactly. And again, thanks to our sponsors, Minnesota Soybean Growers and the Minnesota Corn Growers. And yep, again, June 29th at 8 a.m. We'll be back again next week. So have a great rest of the day and thank you, everyone. Thank you all. And thank you, Joe, for hanging in there. Appreciate that. And we'll be talking to you. Uh, please go to the, the crop news for a lot of these timely articles on, on weeds, insects, diseases, and nutrients as well.